This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. Wow, it's already been a great morning of worship listening to the church share its life and uh, well, how proud I am to see so many people engaged in so many different walks of life within the body of Christ using their gifts and serving in an extra special way and that is indeed worship as well as our singing and the message this morning. You know this morning we're going to continue in our study of the book of Romans and what you have set before you as you turn there is Romans the seventh chapter. And I want you to know this is a very intriguing chapter. We're going to cover the whole chapter this morning, so you need to strap it in. We're going to move pretty quickly. As you probably have already noticed on your mega outline. But this is a most intriguing chapter. But you know, even more more than intriguing, I want you to know it is absolutely crucial in understanding the Christian life. Uh, Mike Cruz was talking about uh, those in Honduras, you know, saying, you know, we understand the message about Christ, but we don't know how to deal with sin. Did you know that's exactly the same problem that Americans have? They understand the Christian life, at least the message and the understanding, but this whole issue about how to deal with sin is, again, an issue that oftentimes eludes them. Romans 7 deals with a lot of that. So we've got an exciting chapter we're going to cover. But I want to give you an overview of this chapter before we get into it. You know, Romans 7 is to the flow of the book of Romans, much like what an unsuspecting speed bump is to your car. It's one of those rude, sudden jolts that violently remind us as we're driving that we better be careful here. We just can't do as we please. In our study of this letter, we, over, the several, over several months, we've moved from, in a sense, arrogant, defiant, even religious unbelief that we saw in chapters 1 through 3 into a gracious, liberating belief that we discovered starting in chapter 4 and running all the way through chapter 6. We've transitioned from the issue of condemnation in chapters 1 through 3 to justification in chapters 4 and 5 where we're made right before God by grace, not by works. And then we slowly but smoothly slid into Romans 6 where we began to break open this doctrine of sanctification which is not just being right before God, but it's actually becoming right before God. And so far, if you've been with us over these last several months, it's all gone very smoothly. And that sense of smoothness would continue but for the bump of Romans 7. In fact, if you look in your Bibles, if you have them already open there, you could finish up chapter 6 where he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And immediately begin Romans 8.1 where it says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and move on very, very smoothly. Free from sin, and now carefree in Christ. Graciously justified, now wonderfully sanctified in Romans 8. It all sounds so good until we hit Romans 7. And let me just give you a sample and you'll see what I mean. Look at verse 14. 
For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing, I do not understand, for I am practicing that which I do not do. But I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do. <laughs> but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. Feel the bump? Let me ask you this. How many of you in your Christian life at one time or another would say, that's me? Let me see your hands. Whoa! Now let me give you a shock. Did you know that the early church fathers, those in the first three centuries of the Christian church, when they interpreted the Scriptures and began to write commentaries, they were so shocked by this speed bump in Romans chapter 7 that they concluded that Paul's admission here in Romans 7 could not possibly be a Christian speaking. Well, that puts us in good shape, doesn't it? <laughs> that that could not possibly be expressing the Christian's experience. So I have to conclude either they were wrong or none of us here who raised our hands are in the faith. Feel the bump? In essence, Romans 7 says to us, it warns us as we move through it, be careful here, take your time. The Christian life is powerful. The Christian life is liberating. But if you really want to be serious about the Christian life and really living it out, you better slow down here and you better master these principles that are coming up in 7 and 8. Otherwise, you're in for a rude, shocking bump. Now Paul begins what I call this speed bump chapter with an odd kind of illustration. There's an introductory illustration that we have to work through. I call it on your outlines the second husband illustration. And I want you to know in using it, Paul is trying to help us understand the proper role of God's law. And by the way, every time I use God's law to help us, because all they had was the Old Testament back then. When I mention God's law, I want you to think the whole Bible. But he's trying to help us understand the proper role of the Bible or God's law in a believer's life. What it is, what it does, what it isn't, what it can't do. We need to understand that if we're to successfully live out the Christian life. So let me give you this odd opening illustration. First of all, look at verses 1 through 3. Paul says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the Bible or the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? Then he gives this illustration from the law, the Old Testament. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then... If while her husband is living she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Now you're kind of wondering, well, what has all this got to do with freedom in Christ and all that? Well, we'll get there, but follow along. These opening verses are just simply a restatement of the Mosaic law. And as you know, our present American law at many, many points is constructed off of the Mosaic Blueprint. We have laws that follow this very law that we just read about here in the opening of Romans 7. 
And here's what it says. God's law, American law, at least in its past form, would say that marriage is for life. It also says that any sexual involvement outside the marriage bond is not inappropriate. It's wrong. It makes you an adulteress or an adulterer. I'm sorry, I, I just couldn't help that. <laughs> However, here's the point that he makes in verse 3. He says, but you know, there are limits to this law. There's limits to the reach of this law. Death of either spouse terminates the reach of this Mosaic law. The moment a husband dies, like here in this illustration, he ceases legally to be the wife's husband. Maybe not emotionally, but legally. And his surviving widow ceases to be legally a wife. She becomes a woman again. She has been released from the law of marriage and is now free to remarry. And that is the key point that Paul's making as we open up. It's just simply this, that death releases a person from the law. Now remember that. Death releases a person from the law. Therefore, look at verse 4. Therefore, since death releases a person from the law. My brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Now, what does Paul mean here? Now, let me say we could spend the whole message here because this is very sophisticated theological language that's got a lot of depth and you need to know a lot about the Scriptures in order to really get a grasp of this. But I want to just summarize it in essence. Here's what he's saying. As a wife dies to the marriage law in the death of her husband, she dies to that. We also die to having to live out perfectly God's law by the death of our first husband. Now listen, we die to having to live before God legally. We die to that constraint, that, that pressure, by the death of our first husband. And you know who our first husband is? It is the law-fulfilling Christ. That's our first husband. You see, in faith, we married the incarnate Christ. We look at His life, how He lived, what He did, how He died, and we marry that in faith. We join ourselves to the only person who ever perfectly fulfilled God's law on this earth. But in His body... Now, you notice that phrase in verse 4? You might even underline it. But in His body... This law-fulfilling husband also suffered the law's penalty for our disobedience. So that when he died in his body for our sins, two powerful things happened. When we look at Christ on the cross dying for our sins, having perfectly fulfilled the law, when we marry that in faith, two things powerfully happen in that moment. First, we died to the law ourselves what the law was going to place on us. We were released from it. We died to the futility of having to earn our way to God. We were released from that futility which is still over those who are not in Christ. They still live on this earth trying to earn their way to God. We were released from that in His death, in His body. But secondly, as He died, we were also released from that marriage and given the opportunity to marry again. Now listen very closely because this is the illustration. And who did we remarry? 
We remarried our second husband in faith. And who is that? It's the life-giving Christ. Look at verse 4. Do you see it there? Second line of verse 4. That you might be joined to another. Okay, who is this other? It's not the earthly Christ, the incarnate Christ, the law-abiding Christ. No, it's to Him who was raised from the dead that in that resurrected life He might give us power, not just release from the law, so that we might, what? Bear fruit for God. You see, in Him, we no longer live by the Mosaic Law, a code of do's and don'ts, but by a higher law. Look at verse 5. It says, For while we were in the flesh, trying to relate to God through the law, trying to be good enough for God, it says all that that did, that law, it just stirred up our sinful passions which were aroused by the law, they were at work in our members of our body to bear fruit for death. We kept falling short. We kept feeling that <clears throat> death of not living up to it. But now, verse 6, we have been released from the law. We don't have to try that anymore. That's not our approach to God. We've died to that by which we were bound. So that now we serve totally different. It's a whole different paradigm. We don't serve because we have to. We serve because now we've got a new spirit. God's spirit is joined with ours. And we serve in that freshness of the spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. Of the letter. We have this new heart. We have this new spirit. And all that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? It's free. It's fresh. It's alive. And you know, when I read that, I just simply thought of the numbers of people that I've met over my lifetime who come from very strict religious backgrounds, who all they've ever heard in church all their life is, don't do this, and don't do that, and you better live this way, and if you don't, you're going to get this. And they've been told the letter over and over again. And when they hear this different message, this different approach to God, that it's not crawling our way trying to con this code, but it's in a whole different way of in the Spirit and in love and in grace, it's absolutely liberating. But now, remember, we're in Romans 7. It's a speed bump chapter. And, we, and it tells us, even with this illustration, as good as it is, now be careful here, because you can get easily hurt, and many have. Because listen, hearing that I've been released from the law, it can easily be reinterpreted to mean that we don't need the law. We don't need God's Word. We don't need all these constraints. We don't need all these do's and don'ts. We can just throw them out. It's just love. That's all it is. Or we can even move as Paul suspected some might move to that, you know, God's Word, God's law, God's Bible, it's really a problem. And that's why the very next verse, you notice it, verse 7, states that with a question. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is the Bible a problem? Is God's law what has kept people from being liberated spiritually? Is that what keeps our world from loving one another is we've got these fundamentalists who give us all this do's and don'ts and keep us bound up in a straitjacket from love? Is that our problem? Let me tell you, that question is very relevant today. Because many today say that Christianity's problem is the Bible. Now, I don't know how well-versed you are in the theological rhetoric that's going around our world, but the Bible is under incredible attack 
its rules, its laws, its principles have been declared by a large portion of even the church as antiquated, as oppressive, as sexist, as irrelevant. And many of the people who propound that we get away from the Bible are those who've been hurt by those who pounded into them when they were kids the letter, not the Spirit. And so they grew up in these very strict backgrounds and they were beat up. And I've always noticed that many of the severest critics in the media grew up in strict religious homes. And they're reacting to that because it killed them. It didn't liberate them. It killed them. And they say if we just replace the Bible with love and tolerance, Christian, Christianity would be liberated from this oppressive tyranny. In fact, you know, in October, the controversial Episcopal bishop John Spong from Boston will preach here in Little Rock. He'll be here. And he currently has a best-selling book called Why Christianity Must Change or Die, which spends hundreds of pages rejecting everything in the Scripture and replacing it with a retread Beatles theme of the 60s. All we need is love. That's what he'll say. In fact, I'm going to quote him here from his book. He says, The church's mission is to help everyone live fully and love wastefully. Just love. Just be tolerant. Now, you know, that may sound in some ways silly to you, <clears throat> but I want you to know many in the media, many in the academic centers of our world, and many in our churches would say, is the Bible sin? And let me tell you what they'd whisper under their breath. Yes. It's the problem. It's antiquated moral laws are what is holding this country back. And that's why it rails against those who believe the book. That's exactly why. Now, Paul has a different take on this, as you'll note. He has, I think, a much healthier take. Listen to what he says. Look at verse 7. He says, what should we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. Like Dan mentioned, three negatives. No, no, not at all. On the contrary... I would not have come to know sin except through the law. So here's what he says, first of all, as he responds to that question. He says, no, I want to give you three reasons why the law is still valid. First of all, the law is essential because the law revealed to me, and he's speaking now personally of himself, it revealed to me my sinfulness. You see, we need to understand, no matter how much we want to love one another, that the primary barrier between man and God from day one, all you have to do is open to Genesis and see it, from day one it's always been an issue that just stabs mankind in the heart. It's sin. Sin is an issue. Now we, you know, Menninger wrote years ago, whatever happened to sin, we want to even get away from that word. But sin will always be an issue. And until we look in the mirror... The only way we ever get healthy in this life is when one day, somehow, in some way, the Word of God leads us to the place where we look in the mirror and we go, sinner. Sinner. Until we get to that place, we will never get healthy, ever. We will constantly be trying to draw up images and barriers and protect ourselves and try to convince ourselves that we're okay and we're almost good enough for God. Just work a little harder. Paul says, you know, I've done that. Probably done it better than most of you. And I needed the law to point out to me, Paul, you are 
a sinner. You've fallen short. You'll not get there. Look at verses 7b through 11. He mentions another thing, the law killed by plan for self-righteousness. He says, you know, if I hadn't looked at the law, I would not have known about coveting, because the law said, you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. In other words, I'm not aware of it. But when I have the law, I know not to do it. It just seems to inspire me to do it all the more. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive. I was aware of it. That's what he's really saying. I was aware that I was a sinner. And I died. And this commandment, which was the result in life, that I thought I could get there, it didn't give me life. It proved to result in death for me, for sin taking opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. What is he saying in all that? He's telling us that the law killed his plan for righteousness. Notice that here in these verses, Paul mentions the tenth commandment, coveting. You know why he does that? Because as a law-abiding Pharisee, he could keep the other nine. You can keep those pretty well externally at least. Good people tend to think that they can earn their way to God. But he says, out of those nine commandments, there came one that did something different. It was the tenth commandment. It's lusting after good things and bad things and what other people have and how they look and what they own and where they are and all those kinds of things. And he began to look at that and there was once a time where he looked at his life kind of naively and it looked like a clear spring pool of freshness. He said, that was my life and I took pride in that and I thought I was going to be good enough, a Pharisee of Pharisees. But he said, over time as I matured and God began to press this 10th commandment into my life, asking me, do you covet not only did he learn that he did covet, but it stirred up in him this muddy pool of life and he found himself coveting all the time. The harder he tried, the more he failed. Now yours might not be coveting. Yours might be lying. Yours might be greed. Yours might be lust. But the harder he tried, the more he failed. His self-made plan for righteousness totally unraveled. The law had now killed his plan. This plan that he had, naive as it may have been, of earning his way to God. He could no longer pride himself in being a law keeper. Now he began to sense that he was a law breaker. And the law had not only revealed his sinfulness, it had, as verse 10 says, broken through and killed him. And what did it kill? It killed his pride and now I want you to listen closely. You know what a man or woman does when they finally realize, when they finally realize in their heart of hearts that they will never be good enough for God? They have one or two choices. There's a fork in the road. When they finally come to terms that they're not going to earn their way to God, they can do one or two things, and I see it all the time. They can either break at that point and really seek after the living God, or they can do what so many others do, they can become, as verse 10 says, self-deceived, religious, religious, religious hypocrites. Who endorse only the rules that they can keep and soften or ignore altogether the commandments of God that they can't keep or don't want to keep. Is everybody hearing me at this point? You see the fork in the road? And so we create whole religions, whole denominations 
where we, where we reinforce the things we like to hear, but we never mention or we reinterpret or we throw away entirely the things we don't want to hear. So we're good enough for God. Is the law or the Bible today the problem? Paul says, no. The law rightly revealed my sinfulness. It's kind of like, thanks, I needed that. Secondly, no, the law killed my plan for self-justification. And then finally, notice in verse 12, no, the law really is holy and righteous and good. So what's the problem? If it's not the do's and don'ts of the Bible, if the law really has a place in my life, what's my problem? What's holding me back from this free, wonderful experience with Jesus Christ? Well, look at verse 13. He says, you know what the problem is? He says, therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? No, not any. No, that's not it. He says, here's your problem. Underline it. It's sin. That's my problem. And all the law did was help me understand how utterly sinful I am so that I come to the conclusion in verse 14. I finally get it right. Verse 14 says, for we know. You might underline no. We know. We finally come to understand if we're rightly thinking here. We know that the law is spiritual. It's good. But I also know as I look at my life, even as a Christian, I am a flesh. I'm weak. I'm sold into bondage to sin. And now we come to the sin issue. See, having vindicated the law here, Paul now proceeds to what I call on your outlines life's most important perspective. Well, I think it is. It's, it's the most important perspective. Yes, we've been freed from the demands of the law. But how do we become free from the sin that the law reveals in me? Is that not one of life's most pressing and important questions? Is that not what the church spends 95% of its time dealing with? Is that not where you wrestle the most? How do I become free from the sin the Bible reveals? Why is it that so many Christians live in the following way, starting in verse 15? Understanding rightly, but not doing rightly. In fact, doing the very thing I hate. So that now no longer am I the one doing it, but I find that sin indwells me. Verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not wish. Or that I, yeah, that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but I find that sin indwells me. I find the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. As I said at the beginning of this message, the futility of this statement led the early church fathers to think that Paul was speaking as a Pharisee. He's going back into his past, not as a Christian. It wasn't until later when the great theologian Augustine and later men like Martin Luther and John Calvin weighed in that another interpretation was given and that interpretation was that no, this really is a regenerate person speaking here. And so a fierce debate began around this text. By the way, the debate still rages in theological circles. 
Though I personally believe because of how you raised your hands in evidence earlier. That's the Christian experience being described here. So what are we to make of this passage? To me, the real controversy is not whether Paul's confession here is of a regenerate or unregenerate nature. That's not where the real controversy is. The real controversy for me is this. Is this the normal Christian life? Or is it an abnormal Christian life? Boy, that's the big question. If I'm a believer, especially a young believer here, or maybe I've been in Christ for a while, the thing I'd want this text to tell me is, is this what most people are experiencing? Is this what I should suspect will be kind of the high end of my Christian experience? Or do I, do I settle into this, to this and say this is normal? Are most of the Christian victories in a Christian's life merely occurring in Bible studies and church services where we have our minds joyfully attuned to hearing the law of God like here this morning and our spirits are singing a certain sense of harmony with that, but that's because the flesh is in the off position? And so really what the Christian life is all about is people gathering together wishing it could be so. Just wishing it could be so. Hearing it and going, I wish I could do that. But then recognizing that when the real world comes, can't do it. Is that what's going on here? See, I think what Paul is describing here is what I call a Lazarus-like experience. You remember Lazarus in the Bible? Some of you do. That good friend of Jesus who died unexpectedly and there was great mourning and then Jesus came on the scene and his, one of His great miracles, after Lazarus had been dead for four days, He raised Lazarus from the dead. But do you remember how Lazarus came forth from the grave? He was alive. But do you remember that he was still, one of the things that's described there in that passage, he was still bound by his grave clothes? <laughs> you know, he... You know, I just love that miracle in the, in the story of Jesus where He just raises His hand where all these Pharisees are doubting Him. And He says, Lazarus, come forth! Now I want you to know, when He came forth, He didn't come forth going like this. Shaking hands, high-fiving people. You know how He came forth? He came forth like this. Are you starting to get the picture? That's how He came forth. He came forth with a new, real life. A resurrected life. It was so authentic. And everybody gasped when He came out of that tomb. But you know what He still lacked? He still lacked real liberty. Didn't have it yet. Because there were still the remnants of death holding Him back from His new life. That's why I feel such pain and such identification when I come to verse 24. Wretched, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? I know that all too well. As a Christian, it's one thing to say, I rejoice. Oh, I rejoice that God has forgiven me. But you know, it's quite another thing on Monday to go out and do it over and over again the same old sin again and again. 
those grave clothes? It's one thing to say, I wish to be pure. It's another thing to find myself so easily given to all kinds of immorality in our base and immoral and crude world. It's easy as a Christian to say, I delight in God's faithfulness. And then to go out and fail Him in such despicable ways and find myself on Sunday crawling back. Crawling back. And then after a long and steady stream of that, sometimes wondering if I even want to go back. You see, it's one thing as a Christian to say, I know what God desires. It's another thing in the real world to know what He desires and easily cast it aside so I can fit in with this crowd. So I can have their puny, pygmy acceptance. But I do it. I know it's easy to say, I confess my addictions, Lord. But I know it's a totally different thing to have victory over them, to have power in life. That's why Paul rightly calls this the body of death. You know, he knew exactly what he was talking about when he used that phrase, body of death, because it came out of the very city that Paul grew up in. Because in Tarsus they had a way, a cruel way of extracting punishment on people who killed other people. They would take the person that he killed and they would take that lifeless body and strap it on the convicted killer's back, arm to arm, thigh to thigh, body to body, head to head, tightly bound. And then they would drive the convicted killer out of the city. And he would wander around with that body of death behind him until over time the body began to rot and the gangrene began to set in. And this killer suffered an incredibly cruel execution. Now let's go back to the question. Is that the normal Christian life? See, I think this whole passage cries out. There's something wrong here. Go slow. The Bible's still important. You can't just throw it out. But at the same time, do you see what he's saying here? He's saying here, listen, you've been delivered through Christ from the penalty of sin. You've been released from the law. But how is it that you continually fail? Is it not because you then think you can take the Word alone and somehow deliver yourself from the practice of sin? Such a, it's such an easy twist to get to that place. If you'll notice through verses 14 all the way through 24, there's only two things mentioned. This is so important. See this observation. The only two things that are mentioned over and over again is I the pronoun I and the Word of God. And what's happening is this person is thinking that somehow if they know enough, if they get the principles, if they get the teaching, now that they've been delivered by Christ, if they can just get more insight, more Bible study, more, more encouragement in the Word, a group that can stimulate them in some special way in the Scriptures, that they'll be delivered from their sins. But all you get is bondage. All you get is falling further short. And I see people do that all the time. They read their Bible. They go back and say, well, I need to read my Bible more. I need to seek accountability. I need to join a small group. I need to go to church. They, they love interacting with people. They'll constantly go to more people, find some power, spiritual power person to be around. They'll go get a mentor. 
They'll go for endless hours of counseling, all of which are good, all of which get recommended all the time at Fellowship Bible Church. But the most important, indeed the key ingredient that sets us free is never really seriously considered or ever cultivated. Not really. Not today. Not in America. You know what that is? It's so simple. It's in verse 25. Listen, I almost say it and then I think, no, I can't say it powerfully. It's just Jesus Himself. It's just the person of Christ. The living Christ. Your husband that you're married to in faith who wants to spend time with you, who wants to be intimate with you, who wants you. Not you more in the Word necessarily. You. That's where you're falling short. You show me a person who inwardly has been captured by a growing love and worship of Jesus Christ. Now listen to me. A growing love and worship of Jesus Christ. The magnificent Christ. His life. His love, His comfort, His being, His conviction. A sense of meeting Him and worshiping Him and being caught up with the image of Him. You show me a person that radiates that love relationship. Not just the practice of religion, but Him. And I'll show you a person being set free from death. But on the other hand, you show me a person who has let that central relationship go for more friends and more accountability and more counseling and more seminars and devouring more books. And I'll show you a person bound in denial or pain or both. They're not free. They know a lot. But they're not free because they're still trying to extract from the Word of God and from friends and stuff what they want. Not what this magnificent Christ wants for them. And sometimes what He wants for you is hard. But if you love Him, that you die for Him. It doesn't matter because this is just a brief span of time in life. You're going somewhere. But only through that love relationship can you really actually feel that you're going somewhere. Otherwise, you'll do what so many other Christians do. You'll say, it's not worth it. I'm not getting what I want. This is not working out right. I've got to work this. I don't want to be married to this person. I've got to have this thing. I've got to have comfort. I've got to get away from pain. Show me a Bible verse. Oh, I love that Bible. Don't be anxious. Oh, that's great. Now I'm not going to be anxious. Yeah, you will be. I've got to escape my friends, so I get in a group. Everybody help me not sin. But then after the group surrounds you and gives you everything you want, you still go out and do it. Why? Because at the core, there's just this big vacuum where Jesus was supposed to be. He was supposed to be there. He wanted to be there. He raised from the dead to be there. There's only grave clothes around you. That's why Paul says, who will set me free? Me, the apostle, when I get in these moments. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you notice at the end of that, it's got an exclamation point. I like to say it's just Jesus, period. So simple, but so profound. So how do you get yourself wired for Jesus? That's what I like to call it, wired for Jesus. Well, you noticed on your outlines I have four things that are never to be forgotten. 
I'm going to skip three of them for the sake of time. And somewhere in the future, I'll give them to you. But I want to focus on the one that I think is the most important. Okay? So don't get disturbed that we're going to go to letter D. There are obvious answers to how a person wires himself for Jesus. And I don't say that in any way but worshipfully. Time-proven answers. Answers that go against the American grain in our feverish pace. But they're still the answers. They'll never go away. They keep being held up to us. They're the answers that are so obvious that I don't really even need to give them. It's things like time alone in prayer. It's things like meditation and reflection and worship and worship and worship. Because until you just get caught up in worship of Him, there'll always be something else you're living for. It's quiet time. It's being alone with God, listening for His voice, opening His Word that still is relevant, and reading it, but not reading it just to master information, but reading it, listening for His voice to speak to you. And then obeying it and feeling that partnership and that love relationship come alive. Those are some obvious answers. And I would commend them all to you knowing that those who wire themselves with these tools will connect with Jesus and they will move on into the glorious chapter of Romans 8 rather than staying stuck in the ignominious latter half of chapter 7. But I do have one other suggestion, one that I've learned just by observing in life. It's one that I think is very important for many of you who need to take those first steps because the relational side is not your strong point. There are a number of men in particular, and I would put myself in, in this camp, that, that this would be a first good building block to connecting relationally and experientially with Jesus Christ. Here's what I believe it to be. It's through this. It's through open, honest, intimate relationships. That's what it is. Now, I want to give, tell you that it's not just through relationships, because I've already talked about just relationships generally. No, these are relationships that follow a particular pattern in a particular way. And I want to use this diagram to show you what I mean. Now, now I don't want you to get caught up in writing this stuff down. It's kind of obvious. So just, just, just watch it appear on the screen. Okay? It starts in these open, honest, intimate relationships with what I call the defeat, the descent of defeat. And what I mean by the descent of defeat is every person comes to Christ the same way. We finally decide life's not working for us, right? If life were working for you, you'd never come to Christ. But it's also true in our Christian life. After we've tried to do it alone, if you've been trying to do it alone and you say, you know, you're sitting out there like some of you are going, well, Robert's talking about this love relationship. I don't have it. Robert's talking about living in victory. I'm not living in victory. Then maybe here's a step for you. It's what I call the descent of defeat in relationships to some other people. It's called going into a group of people assembling together and sharing the loss of your personal vision. It's sitting around with a group of men like I've done and saying, you know, it's not working. My marriage isn't working. I don't want to give money to anybody. I like it for myself. You know, I've worked this job and I thought it would bring me all this fulfillment. It hasn't. What do I do? It's the loss of personal vision, what I want. And it's so good to get that out and talk about it, share it, interact, 
And then you move in these little categories of things that you share that despair, you confess your sins, you become honest. And with this group of whoever, you get honest feedback. People begin to, begin to really help you see yourself for who you are. Because you know what? we got tons of blind spots. Now let me tell you, there are a lot of groups like that. And I want to offer you one little caution here. If that's all that group does, you know where it moves to? It moves to what I call stagnancy. Toxic self-absorption. <laughs> because all, I know guys who get together and gals who get together, and ten years later they're still in there talking about their failures, their despair, they're confessing their sins, they're hearing feedback, but they're going nowhere. But the kind of group I'm talking about makes a major turn in the road down there at the bottom. Because within that group, there are some who are connecting with Jesus Christ, and that's why you're there. You're not just there to talk about what your losses are. You're trying to find a gain. You're trying to find that wiring to Jesus Christ. But as a person, you don't feel much, so you're not sure how to even get there. But you want to be around guys or gals in that group, so it moves to what I call the ascent of life. And by that, you, in the time of sharing your life, some begin to talk in that group of their love for Jesus Christ. And you go, well, what do you mean by that? And you begin to explore that. And in the midst of that, that person begins to give you some challenges or persons of how you need to develop your life. They won't let you off the hook. They've heard how you fail. They're asking you to move forward, not just sit and whine. So you hear those challenges, and you, you begin to have new discoveries about Him, ways to relate to Him, ways to worship Him, ways to become a real man or a real woman in the person of Christ. And you, over time, as you listen, as you learn, as you're challenged, suddenly you begin to get rewired and you connect and you start experiencing the living Christ and there starts to begin to be freedom and at the end you've gained a personal relationship with Jesus Christ without which you will live under the letter of the law the rest of your life and that's death. Before I close, let me just say it one final time because we're on this speed bump and we're going to go into the glory of Romans chapter 8 next week. Only when Jesus' life has engaged us personally, only when our love for Him has become, listen, only when our love for Him has become more important than our gain or our pain. Only when His presence becomes our worship and His will, our heartbeat. Only when those things happen in me, only then can we walk out of Romans 7 and into Romans 8 and stand in power and say, free at last. Free at last. Great God Almighty, I'm free at last. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. How powerful it is in helping us understand and grasp this Christian experience. And God, we are so weak. And Your law, as wonderful as it is, cannot get us into the end zone. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. 
visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs. 